Welcome to Technically Speaking, a Keller Schroeder podcast series. Each episode, our experts will be addressing common industry problems and how you can improve your business's performance through technology. I'm Mallory, your host, and today in our studio, I am delighted to again have Tom Bargo, Vice President of the Data Strategy Group, on as our guest today. Today, Tom will be discussing strategic planning and culture. Hey, Tom, it's so good to have you back. How are you? I'm great, Mallory. Thanks for having me back, and I really appreciated the delighted to have me here. <laughs> Absolutely. Tom, you guys are the data strategy group, but you know, so often I hear you talking about corporate strategy and culture. Why is that? Uh, because I think that data and analytics are strategic in nature. And in fact, I would argue that you could say that your data strategy is your corporate strategy. It's really the measurement basis for everything that you're trying to do to manage operations, to do improvement, and to do continued learning. Data and the management of data is the heart that pumps lifeblood to the rest of the organization. Managing data and doing analytics uh, in many organizations is done by a separate group of analysts. But in fact, it, it really should be the basis for how you run your business. Getting everybody on board with that can be a major change, transformational even. And for that reason, understanding how to shift a culture to be good with analytics is probably the most important element of implementing a data strategy. An organizational competency with analytics is the foundation of measuring performance and learning. That's interesting that you just said learning twice. So what do you mean by that? Well, if, if I'm managing the business using analytics and data, right, I'm, mm-hmm. looking, at, I'm looking at numbers and I, you know, some people call it managing by fact. But whether it's operational day-to-day management, things like business intelligence and, and looking at dashboards that show me my current performance and past performance, Right. That leads to better decision making. And so that's a form of learning. And then the new trend is advanced analytics. And that's the idea of harvesting all of your data and analyzing using advanced analytics or as my friend says, applying math. You can study data for correlation and patterns that will lead to new insights. Hence, that's learning. That makes sense. Okay, totally makes sense. Tell me a little bit more about that link to corporate strategy. Okay, so you say that you hear me talk about corporate strategy a lot. Corporate strategy is not something that my group does. Uh, That's something that's typically facilitated by somebody that really understands your industry, your marketplace, your competitors, and they put together your corporate strategic plan, right? The group of Mm -hmm. executives do that. When I talk about corporate strategy, I'm talking about strategy execution. It's, It's translating it into an action plan for the organization. So you can have the strategy, but if you don't have an effective way to translate it into action, you don't get the traction and you don't get the achievement that you wanted out of your strategic plan. I have a client we're working with today. They had an outside consultant that came in, really understood their industry and put together a beautiful, I mean, it was a beautiful strategic plan. It was organized around five corporate strategic goals that were end state goals. It had sub goals and then it had strategies or you know actions or initiatives to do. That's super thorough, super, too. Yeah, and it was organized in, in three years. You know, what you're going to do in year one, year two, year three. Here's what the issue was with it. Beautifully written, though it may have been, it wasn't actionable. As we started to work with the client and we studied it, the measures had the words that described the measure, but it didn't mm-hmm. actually give you the measurement metric. We weren't clear on whether we measured that today, so I didn't know how to assess baseline performance. Could I even set a goal? Right. Uh, to that metric, right? And it's not helpful when you can't set those goals at all. So, yeah. So, I, that's the whole point is I got to be able to measure it, to manage it, to get better. It raised a lot of questions. A, do we all agree on what the definition of these measures are? 
do we measure that today? If not, I've got a project on my hands. I have to figure out how to right. measure something. And then the other thing is to make something actionable, you have to prioritize and rationalize a plan against available resources. We started to deconstruct just the first goal. They had over 50 items that were kind of like thou shell statements, projects they had to get done in the first three years. It was already overwhelming the amount of resources they had available. Oh, I bet. So that's what we're talking about is taking something and translating it into reality and then kind of freezing it as the annual business plan so we can all act on it. We all understand how we're acting on it. Right. Now that you've mentioned all that, how do you do that translation? It's a good question. Think of your strategic plan goals those kind of end state measures that you see in strategic plans as gears at the top of the organization. So what might those goals be? Now, you've seen strategic plans. What what would you expect would be the big goals that you'd find in a strategic plan? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here, Tom. If I had to guess, I would say usually those strategic goals are focused on money. So that's right, like reducing costs and managing it well. Exactly, always. The next one would have to be growth. So your new customers, your new markets. Exactly. What about customer satisfaction? That's always a big one. Yep. And then the last one that comes to mind right now is employees. And usually it has to do something with, you know, employee satisfaction, employee engagement. Exactly. It's internally focused on our employees, productive, engaged, et cetera. So that's what organizations oftentimes refer to as their balanced scorecard, right? So those are the gears that I'm picturing in my head. You got money, growth, employees, and customer satisfaction. And what you have to do with your strategic plan execution is you need to kind of take each one of those goals one at a time and start to cascade them down to the organization to find out, wait a minute, what's the gear? You can't walk in and just improve customer set, right? Right. So what's the gear that turns customer satisfaction? And it may be another kind of lagging end state indicator. So Mm -hmm. then you just keep asking that question. Okay, well, what turns that gear? And if you do that translation, as you go down through the organization, you'll ultimately get to the business process that has to perform at a certain level to achieve the goal. And then when that gear turns, it turns one above it, which turns one above it. It makes everything work. Yeah, that's kind of how I picture it. That's what we call gap closure, right? You deploy each goal and you're studying. First, it presupposes that you have a measurement. You understand how that goal is measured. We have the metric. And I understand my current state performance. And then I can set a target on desired state or future state performance. And it's the thing in the middle, right? The gap in the middle is what we're studying. And we're trying to figure out how do I close that gap? And you do that usually through a structured problem-solving approach, just a classic, what are the root causes? What are the barriers? What can I do? What could I implement? Maybe a new technology, something. How can I close that gap and get more performance out of this process? And if I can do that, then that gear is turning and it turns, in theory, the gear above it. So I think I get what you're saying, and the gears are starting to turn in my head now. Can you (laughs) kind of walk us through a little bit of an example? All right, yeah. I'll take a project that I actually worked on. I worked in an organization that wanted to improve customer satisfaction for any number of reasons. We knew that high customer satisfaction led to persistency, meaning the customer, when their contract's renewed, they'd stay with us. So that was really critical. They had bad customer satisfaction, they left, which is bad. We realized we had to study customer satisfaction. We had to make sure that we had our gears connected and we're doing the right things. So in the first year, we had no basis for measuring customer satisfaction. So I actually hired a consultant that came in and helped us study our customers and what we did for a living and create a survey instrument that would be meaningful to measure our customers with. And then from that survey instrument, we now had a baseline and we understood the key drivers of satisfaction. 
some of those key drivers that led to customer satisfaction were all in the call center, right? So there are very specific things. Some of the top things were accuracy. If the customer called back three times in a row, did they get the same answer? You'd be surprised to learn that that wasn't always true. Really? Yeah. So we didn't have a very good (laughs) call center. I can see where this is going to go. One of the other ones was closed first contact. Could I get my business done with one call to you, right? If I came in with a complex question, did you have all the information to answer my question while I was right there with you on the phone? Instead of, hey, I'm going to have to call you back or I'll email you and you never get those emails. Yeah, let me research this. Right. drives you nuts. And third one was handle time. How long was I on the phone with companies called average handle time? How long did the call take? And then courteousness, just being a pleasant CSR customer service representative experience. Believe it or not, there are call coaching programs to help your customer service reps handle people on the phone better. So first year, we now have a measurable basis. We have a survey and we we see that these are key drivers, right? Mm -hmm. So that first year, that's a project that was an enabling action just to be able to create that survey instrument. Now I have a basis for measurement. In the second year, I know what the key drivers are. So I really want to focus on, what did I say? Accuracy. Mm -hmm. So that led to some systems projects. Why? When the customer called back three times, why did they get a different answer? Something's wrong with the data in the systems. So there was a big project associated with that, cleaning that up. Closing first contact when you called me, we assessed all the information that was on the screens for the customer service representative and found the highest volume typical questions that get asked and made sure that all the necessary data was on that screen so the customer service rep could answer the call on the first call. And then the other ones were programs on how to deal with the customer. So there was a call coaching program that we did and courtesy and how to be effective with customers on the phone. You can see that these end state goals of customer satisfaction had to be measurable. Then we understood what the real drivers were. Those drivers were associated to specific processes during the the customer service representative when they're making the call. And then those became dependent on some projects. So that's what I'm talking about when I say cascading it down to picking the right things. What gears have to turn down here to turn that gear, right? To turn that gear to achieve the ultimate goal. And so that's kind of a practical example of what I'm talking about. I like it. It makes a lot of sense. And like you said, it starts with something small and it just keeps building upon itself. This sounds like a lot of focus on customer satisfaction strategy. My question now is, how is data strategy a part of everything you just described? Well, let's think about how many times in that explanation and when you and I were talking, did we use the words measure, correlate, study, improve? It's the old adage that if I can't measure it, I can't manage it. So that means that I have to design the processes to collect the right data so I can analyze performance, so I can see if it had the intended impact, right? In this case, improving customer satisfaction. What if the lower gears weren't actually turning the gears above it? So if you think about that, that's all measurement, analytics, and it's all based on the data that was available to me. They're just tied together. Mm -hmm. I see that. So when you are saying data strategy, you're talking about all the information you need to analyze performance and get those insights. So that's the learning you mentioned? Exactly. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that you had to plan all that ahead of time too, right? Yeah. And that's the angle and that's the process performance and the visibility part, correct? Exactly. You you had to think about all these gears, how they're connected ahead of time. Then you had to implement them and then you had to measure it to see if you're getting the intended effect. Again, just think about the gears. I have to take the end state big lagging indicator measure, customer set. 
but then they have to go down each layer in the organization and study, measure, and manage, and understand what actually drives customer satisfaction. That's all data, and that's all measures. That's data strategy. I can totally see the importance of data to make decisions and to do those smart things to improve your business. Yeah, exactly. And and think about that. It's also what helps you prioritize the investments you make. Right. right? Like new mm-hmm. technology, new software systems, and measuring the effectiveness of those investments. You can do a lot of things. The question is, are you doing the smartest things? How do you know that the gear down below is actually turning the gear above it? Well, how do you know? That's measurement and performance. You know, the title of our podcast is Strategic Planning and Culture. But really, how does culture play in all this? And why is that such an important part of a data strategy? That's a great question. Did you see the movie Moneyball? Yes. Great movie with such a good meaning. And especially that Jonah Hill character with his statistician. Yeah, right. So think about that. Is Here's the Oakland A's. They don't have a lot of money. They can't hire the best baseball players. Jonah Hill's role, right? He's a Mm -hmm. statistician and he just starts studying and changes the whole thinking process, right? Right. The data was showing that it's really just getting on base. You can get people on bases, you can get runs, and if you get runs, you can win. The part that makes that culture is, if you recall in that movie, there was a bunch of the old timer baseball scouts, right? The people that used to go out and find talent and bring them to the ball club. When they started doing the data analysis and making decisions based on data, Remember the reaction of, the, of those guys, the scouts? They were not happy about no, it. No, not at all. They didn't believe it. They felt that they had a special talent for picking the right baseball players. It was a huge shock to them, right? It was a culture shock. Absolutely. Right? And they didn't get aboard. I think in the movie, I think they ended up quitting, leaving or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's where data and managing with data can fly in the face of the status quo. That's a cultural issue. And all the elements of culture are in there, right? You've got people were threatened. It challenged their traditional approach. Right. Right. They were in data denial. They saw the statistics and the data, but they didn't agree with it because it didn't comport with the way they always did it. Everything would go fine if you just get the, the humans out of the way. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> you got to work with all the humans. Right. You got to get them on board. All right. I get the money ball example. I love that you brought that up. Let's circle back. Explain to me the most important aspects of culture planning. Like, how does this all tie in together? With the corporate strategic plan, we're going to do that goal cascade, and we're going to get the measures, and we're going to align it and make sure the gears turn. Equally important, maybe more important, is studying all the humans in the process and the current culture to make sure that they are on board because it's going to require behavior change, typically. New systems, new ways of doing things, right, require somebody to change their behavior. And people have a million priorities, so you have to have a good culture plan to transition people from the way things are done today, current state, to being competent in the way things are supposed to happen tomorrow in the desired state. There are very specific culture planning things that you can do. We use a methodology that was uh, developed uh, by Implementation Management Associates. We call them IMA. Great organization. and They came up with this 10-step methodology. And what I love about it is they call it accelerating change. And that's really what it is. It's designed to help you build an organizational competency with implementing change well. So you can build speed because change is constant. So this is all starting to click. And I've heard the term organizational change management. Is that what you're talking about right now? Yes. In corporations, 
there's usually a department that may focus on what they call organizational change management. That is the process of planning change with a special focus on human factors. I'm not a big fan of organizational change management as a terminology. I really like accelerating change because it really speaks to what you're trying to do. Right. You're trying to do more of it faster, better, and make it stick. I'll give you this example. I ask executives all the time, how do they define organizational change management or how do they define you know, culture shift? How do you shift a culture? And I'll tell you, invariably, I get the answer, well, you know, Tom, it's all about communication and training. Well, actually, those are the two least impactful things that you can do to shift a culture. If you're saying those are the two least, what are the most? Well, there are a number of things, but probably the two biggest things is sponsorship. We like to use the term durable sponsorship because big projects don't always go smoothly. So the durables added in there to mean you're with me from the beginning to the end. You're sticking with me. And then the other thing is what we call reinforcement planning, which would be motivational strategies. And motivation can be incentives and disincentives. So how do I create incentives to attract people into the new world that I'm trying to get to? And how do I create disincentives for staying in the old world, the status quo? Those are the two biggest things. So you get sponsorship and you've got reinforcement planning, which I'll talk more about in a minute. Some other key, we call them accelerators, I like that concept, are defining the change. I mean, that sounds simple, but... But it's a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. You're getting clarity. Do people understand exactly why we're doing this? So this concept of defining the change, and we use a technique, it's called the business case for action. We'll say, what is the change? Why are we doing it? And then my favorite part is the third question, which is, what are the implications if we don't do it? And then laying out the details of what is this big change that's coming? Get people informed. If they understand it better, they can act on it and get on board faster. A typical mistake is to walk into an organization and say, oh, we're putting in a new system, right? Right. And the way it gets announced is it may emphasize how dramatically different it is from what you're doing today, almost to the point where you're scaring people or kind of telling them that they're not very bright and we'll get out do a whole new thing. Creating cultural fit says wherever possible, show how it's compatible with the current culture. We're putting in a whole new software system because there's new technology and it's compatible with the way we've been doing things and we've been improving over time. And now we're going to do this. We're going to learn how to use it. But it's really just an extension of the good work we've done. Give them credit for it. Creating cultural fit is a great topic as well. Again, there's 10 steps in the methodology. It's just that it's more thoughtful than communication and training. It's really thinking through in the frame of reference of the people that you're asking to change. What are you going to have to do? to help them be successful and actually get through the change and be successful in the future state. You mentioned that you would come back to reinforcement. Let's talk just a little more about reinforcement and maybe give us a couple examples. Yeah, reinforcement planning and sponsorship, as I said, were the two most impactful things you can do to shift a culture. But let's get inside reinforcement planning for a minute. What we're talking about there is a series of goals and incentives It's important to design these incentives in the frame of reference of the person you're trying to change behavior on, right? Absolutely. So you're trying to get them to understand what success looks like, right? And we link it up to their performance appraisal system and how they're going to be measured. We make it crystal clear that this is what good happens. Mm -hmm. You can work with us to try to learn the system and be successful with it and is a disincentive to not work with us and learn from it. So really goal design is a key element of reinforcement planning and well-designed goals become part of your performance appraisal system. 
that's typically done in a cascade, kind of like you do your goals, mm -hmm. because we always say that the pressure point, if you want to know what will change somebody's behavior, is who controls the reinforcement. And typically, that's your boss, your supervisor. They're the ones that dictate what your annual appraisal is going to be, how they rated you for the year. So we always want to work through that relationship of boss to direct reports. The other aspect of reinforcement planning is goal design. This is a very deep topic, but let me give one more example. If you think about any specific goal that you're going to hold somebody accountable to, a goal is kind of like a double-edged sword, right? It mm -hmm. can cut in either direction. So you really want to be careful that by emphasizing or trying to incent one set of behaviors, you're not actually creating negative behaviors as an unintended consequence. And so another aspect of good goal design is creating mutually interdependent goals. Let's take executive leadership as an example. And you see this in organizations, but a very effective technique is to say, you know, you don't get paid out on your annual bonus or your incentive pay unless some degree of all of these four measures, the ones you mentioned earlier, right? Money, mm -hmm. growth, employee engagement, customer satisfaction. All of these things have to hit some threshold of their targets. That's right. why goals are designed that way, because you're trying to create the right behavior and getting people to work together and cooperate. The accelerating change, the organizational change management, the human factors of change are probably the most critical elements to shift a culture and probably the least understood. Makes sense. But here's another one of these rule of thumb type things. is One we used earlier, which is you get what you reinforce, right? It's the pressure points always between the manager and direct report because they, to some degree, control your reinforcement for the year. That's also great. It's a reverse diagnostic, by the way. If you want to understand why does somebody behave the way they do, take a look at what in the system is reinforcing or allowing that behavior. I love that one. That's a great way to kind of... That is really cool. Yeah. Di yeah. Diagnose. Why, why is this problem person? Right. Why do they, why do they, how do they get away with it? Another great concept is what we call the quarter-half-quarter Anytime you introduce big change, resistance to change is normal. It's mm -hmm. inevitable. There's an old joke that the only person that willingly accepts change is a baby with a wet diaper. <laughs> okay. Right. Change, yes, of course I'm going to resist it because, A, I'm not sure what our, you know, how good have we been with change in the past? Are you guys serious about this? Blah, 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 blah. I'll get on board when I realize it's real, it's serious, and it's coming. Right. And even then, I get a thousand priorities, right? Right. So, and so, yeah. so much change that you see is usually negative. Yeah, yeah, so, it comes out the wrong way. Right. That is a leadership model. We call it the quarter-half-quarter model. When you introduce big change, as a general rule, the organization will kind of profile itself. You'll have a quarter of the people will be outright resistors. About half the people will be in the middle. They'll sit on the fence. And you have a quarter of them that might be the early adopters. Hey, yeah, let's do this. The classic management response to this, which is the wrong response, is they manage to the resistors. They start trying to go sell the people that are resisting to get on board and everything else. And, and I think oftentimes in my own experience, it's because my own resistance was in the middle of this, right? Makes sense. So it's easier to go talk to the resistors than to actually have to be on the early adopter leading edge. The problem with that is you just taught the organization that it pays to resist. So the half of the organization that's sitting on the fence watches this and they realize, okay, it pays to resist. I'm going to resist too. And early adopters get frustrated because they realize, okay, they're not serious about this change. Right. And early adopters tend to be people that are very good and very employable. So yes. a lot of them, a lot of times the negative impact is they could leave the organization. because Which you don't want at yeah, all. exactly. Right. 
So then, then just to finish that thought out, because I, I always love this concept too, is so what do you do if you actually understood who was resisting, right? That quarter people, the outright resistors, what do we do? Do we fire them? No. Why do they resist? Because they see the problems in the system. It's probably more of a fault of leadership who have not implemented change very well over the years, right? Mm-hmm. They're just vocal about it. In some respects, you could say that they're courageous enough to stand up and go, this is dumb. So your resistors get a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you can work with them and get them on board and they see that you're serious about the change, your resistors can sometimes become your biggest champions. So everybody gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. We're going to work with everybody. But the point is we're going to manage to the future. Don't manage to the past. Don't manage to the resistance. Manage to the desired state. Well, all of that that you just shared was super interesting, Tom, especially that quarter-half-quarter model that you just talked about. And tying all the way back to the title of our episode today, you're the data strategy group. And that totally makes sense why strategic planning and culture should be a big part of every organization. Exactly. Again, I could make the argument that data strategy is the corporate strategic plan. It's really the measurement basis for how you want to do things. And so we work with organizations to do all the things you would expect a data strategy group to do. You know, how do you manage data as an asset? How do you manage it, make it secure? How do you make it available for business intelligence and advanced analytics like predictive analytics? We work with organizations to put all those competencies in place. But if you look at our framework, which is on our website, it's a free downloadable framework. If you read through that framework, every section opens up with cultural implications. It talks about key considerations because everything you're doing is kind of flying in the face of the status quo. So we do workshops with clients, but everything we do is try to make sure that if we're going to do data strategy and and that's, that's, we're going to do managing by analytics, that it's properly synced up to the corporate strategy with durable sponsorship and that you have a reinforcement plan to make sure people are going to do it and that they're going to get through this resistance curve they're going to go through and that we're effectively transitioning to the future state and they become competent with it. It's a huge transformational change. So we see data strategy as something that has to be planned as a major transformational effort. We also see it as something that's critical to future competitiveness for organizations. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tom. It was so great to have you back on. And I think that this was such an insightful topic and I can really see how strategic planning and culture ties into everything. Thanks, Mallory. It was great to be here. All right. Now, before we end our episode today, don't forget that we want you to partner with us to help make that positive personal impact. If you allow Tom and his team to have a quick follow-up conversation with you, we'd like to do two things. First, we'll make a $25 donation to a United Way organization of your choice. Or if you'd prefer to make a positive impact on someone you care about, we'll give you a $25 Visa gift card to treat them as you see fit. Secondly, regardless of the choice you make for the $25 I just mentioned, we will be happy to accept your favorite organization nomination to have a chance to receive our quarterly $500 nonprofit giveaway. To help us make an impact and to have that 20-minute conversation or to schedule a time for an executive innovation workshop that Tom mentioned during this episode, visit kellertrader.com forward slash podcast. The very last thing I'll leave you with today is to remember to subscribe to Technically Speaking wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll be the first to know whenever a new episode is released. Have a great day, and I'll see you next time.